Good morning. My name is Nick, and I'm on one of the elders of Restoration Church. For those who don't know, we have two staff pastors, Joey and Nathan, and two other elders, Chris and me. And Nathan uh, is on a well-deserved sabbatical. So he's coming back sometime in March, right? Lord willing. Lord willing. And while he is away, we have to, to have other people stand here and preach to you. And today it's my privilege to do so. Uh, before we go any further, I need to have the kids. The kids should go to Restoration Kids to be taught the gospel. Friends, I'm going to preach to you this morning a weighty message. Um, and I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to preach it uh, to myself just as much as to you. Uh, as much as to you. Um, for me, uh, this message is a sober and hopeful message. And it is sober and hopeful because I'm a man on a road. A man who asks himself whether he is going on the right road and whether his road is going to reach a good destination. I was born and I grew up behind the Iron Curtain. I'm from Romania. And there are lots of people there. There were lots of people there, the vast majority, who lived their lives just as we do here. And they had aims, hopes, and dreams. And they did the best they could. Some of them were very ambitious, and some of them made it to the top. And they had a better standard of life, and they had the respect and or fear of those around them. And those examples of success, those examples, those images of success, were the most that I could have hoped for when I was born. But when the time came, when the time came, the empire fell. And with it, the accomplishments and the success of these people. And the vast majority of these people did not foresee it. And the ones who did couldn't stop it. All at once, their lives were measured against a different standard. So for me, the message of today is a sobering one. Because I'm a man on a road. And I would really hate it if my road ended like the roads of so many people who lived their lives thinking they led good lives only to find that it was false when their world collapsed. And the message for me is hopeful because in it I meet Jesus as he is going on his own road. And he tells me what the good road is that leads to a good life, which is not going to be disappointed. Jesus tells me to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow him into life. In this sermon, I want you to meet Jesus and see the possible ways of going forward. And I want to show you that the best way to go forward is for all of us to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus into life. The passage for today is Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27. I am going to read starting with verse 13 for the sake of context. Actually, if you don't mind, take that off so that there's no confusion. Thank you. So I'll start with verse 13, Matthew 16, verse uh, 13. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version, so it's going to be different if you have ESV or NIV. Um, It's the same message originally, just translated slightly differently. Now, when Jesus came into the district of 
Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus into life. That statement sounds anywhere between uh, challenging and strange, maybe even crazy, depending on who you are. The reality is that while it sounds unusual, Jesus describes it as the only path to live or to life. It is unusual because we are sinners who have turned God's world upside down. And our perceptions are faulty. The reality is that our lives are on a collision course with God. A collision that can leave us eternally suffering the destruction of our souls. That is, unless we follow Jesus into life on his road, the good road to life. And the road is hard, but that is a true, that's, that's a road where true joy and hope are possible, as opposed to false joys and false hopes that so easily draw our attention. We will see three things in this sermon. We will see that the disciples of Jesus deny themselves. We will see that Jesus is going to the cross. We will see that the disciples of Jesus deny themselves and follow him. And finally, we will see that Jesus is leading them into life. So first point is that Jesus is going to the cross. If we had time, I would love to preach through the entire book of Matthew. But since we are not there yet, 
um, I'm just going to say that this passage over here sits at an inflection point in the biography of Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus was announced by the angel, by angels, and by John the Baptist, was revealed by God at Jesus' baptism, and had a ministry, had had a ministry of a few years where he had called people to repentance, he did miracles, and he proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. He preached, he healed people, and he fed multitudes. He showed kindness to, uh, to a lot of people, and he clashed with the religious and social authorities of the day. In many ways, Jesus was a great guy to meet on your road. He could do so many great things that we all need. And people like Peter recognized this, and they followed him. So let's think of Peter for a moment. He's a poor fisherman from the remote parts of Israel. He's not a learned person, doesn't have a college degree. He doesn't have a chance at an amazing life. His life expectancy was somewhere between 40 and 50 years of age. Getting food was hard work. You, uh, you, you had to fish all night and maybe you caught something. Then one day, one day he hears about John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist introduces him to Jesus. So he starts following Jesus, and Jesus calls him to be one of his disciples. And Peter leaves his home and his livelihood as a fisherman to follow Jesus in the hope that Jesus is the Christ, the king that he and his people were waiting for. So he walks with Jesus day in and day out, and he hears a lot of good preaching, like that of a prophet, He sees Jesus healing people, feeding multitudes, and calling people to repentance. And Jesus is really, really, truly shaping up more and more like the Messiah that was supposed to come, like the, the Christ that was supposed to come. Now they're on the road to Caesarea Philippi, in our passage. And Jesus asks him, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus confirms, God is at work in you. Verse 17, it says, Simon Peter, um, and Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So not only, not only you, Peter, are correct, but God is at work in you. And then he says in verse 18, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That is, I am building a people. I am building my people. And you will be part of that. So what can a man want more than that? I mean, all his life, Peter had waited for this moment. Many times he didn't believe he would find it. How many generations of men, poor fishermen like him, had waited for the Christ and he had not come? Now he was right there. And Peter was part of that. And his dreams were coming true. Life was going to get better. Life was going to get more meaningful. No more hunger, no more sickness, no more oppression. And then, bang! From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Matthew 16, verse 21. Suffer, be killed, be raised. Jesus was going to die 
on a Roman cross as a murderer. Jesus doesn't mention it in this verse, but he mentions it in verse 24. He's going to be mistreated, suffer, and die. Jesus is going to get in trouble with the law. He's going to get in trouble with the law. And he's going to get crucified. Jesus is going to the cross as if he's a murderer. And we're not, it's not somebody else wishing this upon Jesus or saying this is going to happen to you. This is Jesus himself. And we see Peter's reaction in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. We can imagine Peter's pulse spiking, body pumping adrenaline, mouth clenching, sweat forming on his palms and on his forehead. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Matthew's description of Peter's reaction is stark. We are told in verse 22, Peter rebuked Jesus while calling him Lord. The servant rebukes the master, as it were. The child rebukes the parent. The creature rebukes the creator. The reason for this reaction is that Jesus' statement doesn't make any human sense. People don't talk about their deaths like that. People who claim to be the heirs to the throne don't talk like that. People who claim to be the Son of God don't talk like that. What is going to happen to Peter's dreams and hopes? And if this happens to the Savior, what's going to happen to the disciples? And how can the Son of God, the Christ, suffer and die? How could he be so weak and powerless and defeated? And how could God allow such a thing? Isn't God on the side of his people, especially of his son and his anointed one? Wasn't his anointed one supposed to come and make all things right? Peter's reaction is, therefore, completely understandable. He's shocked and he's crushed. His world is coming down. His world is collapsing before his eyes. Jesus, his Christ, is not making any sense. This was supposed to be the one he had waited for all his life. The Christ was going to accomplish hope and make everything great again. No more poverty, no more hunger, no more foreign oppressor, no more sickness. And he was standing right there. He was feeding people, he was healing people, he was railing against the corrupt elite. And then bang! Jesus is going to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed. And neither one of those fits with Peter's mental image of Christ. Neither one of those fits with the trajectory of life that he, Peter, had had imagined for himself. It is one thing to serve somebody who's going to save you. It's another thing to serve somebody who's going to get you killed. It's one thing to serve somebody who goes from weakness to power than one who goes into weakness and death. It's one thing to serve a God who gives victory than one who gives defeat. And Peter knows that at some level or another. And and, uh, so we have Peter on a road. And he meets Jesus and for a while they're on the same road. And things are starting to look good. But now we reach a point where the road splits. 
what we see revealed in this passage is a Jesus who goes to the cross and as such crushes Peter's hopes. Jesus claims he is the Christ, the fulfillment of Peter's dreams. And Peter confesses him to be the Christ. But at the same time, Peter's Christ is not quite as the same as Jesus understands himself. The, the, the Christ is not our image of Christ, but it's his God's Christ, God's anointed. And we see this in verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. In verse 23, Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him not to stand in the way of God's plan. Peter is thinking of human interests, while Jesus is thinking about God's interests. Jesus is God's anointed, and he's preoccupied with God's interests. The Christ of the Scriptures, the Christ of God, is preoccupied with God's interests. Jesus is on a road which aims to accomplish the interests of God. Peter is on a road which aims to accomplish the interests of Peter. What are then God's interests? Jesus had told Peter in verse 18, that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus was going to build his church, which was going to fight Hades. Hades is a Greek word for the underworld, the place of death. So God's plan for Christ, for the anointed one, is to create a people and defeat death. His plan is not to defeat the Roman oppressors that were oppressing the Jewish people at that time, or improve the quality of life or make people better or enact some much-needed social, political, and economic change to make the world better. No, the Christ of God is going to defeat death. Jesus confronts Peter about his interests and claims Peter is thinking of man's interests and not God's. So, so that forces us to ask ourselves, what do we long for? What do we seek? What do we want to have? What do we want to see? Do we want to see people saved and the kingdom of God revealed just as much or more than a good salary, a good career, or a nice family while being part of a good church? Now, don't get me wrong. These are all good things. But I don't think they are what we should seek. Man's interests cannot accept weakness. Can we believe in a Savior who shows this much weakness? To be rejected, to suffer, and to be killed? Anybody can be rejected, suffer, and be killed. You just have to be obnoxious. Isn't the Savior supposed to be strong and powerful? Our Muslim friends, for instance, are offended by Jesus because they cannot conceive that the Son of God would be humiliated and die an abject death. We ourselves, in, we in the Western world, for example, like strength and victory. We may acknowledge that we are weak, but our heroes are supposed to be strong. And uh, our heroes are supposed to lead their followers into victory. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, Wolverine are strong, right? They punch back. They may be pushed around. 
on the ground temporarily, but they punch back and then they bring everybody to victory with them. They don't stand there before the jury, jury being accused silently. They are and mock like the last person on earth and die a murderous death in infamy. You know, death is the end. Is the end. There's nothing beyond that, right? God's interests, however, required Jesus to be weak and despised. The passage doesn't tell us why explicitly. But the context tells us two reasons for the, two reasons for the necessity of the weakness and death of Jesus Christ. One reason is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who dies for the sins of his people. So Matthew 26 verses 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who gives his body so that these disciples can be forgiven. So, if Jesus does not become weak, people cannot be saved from God's wrath. His weakness is not his, but is ours. Which he carries for us so we can be strong. His weakness is the strength of the Savior who bites the bullet for his people. The second reason why he had to become weak and die is to glorify God. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In everything he did, Jesus glorified the Father, including going to the cross. He did only good. He obeyed the Father, even if it meant death and rejection. And when Jesus was resurrected, on the third day, God's power to save and his faithfulness were gloriously revealed. People have always accused God, we, have always accused God, I have always accused God of failing them. He's taking too long. I deserve better. Why does the other person have something I don't? But on the cross, Jesus obeyed God, even to the death. And God saved him. And when he saved Jesus, he saved us. So Jesus is not weak and despised because he has no power because God had failed him. He had the strength to withhold his anger and not smite his enemies dead. That would have vindicated him in the moment but would have sentenced us all to death. God didn't fail him but proved his faithfulness to Jesus and to us all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is not on a human trajectory. He's on a different path which has a different destination. In verse 27 of chapter 16, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The verse closes the passage that we're looking at, right? 
And it starts with the word for, which means it's an explanation. It's pointing to a greater truth, which is explaining the other parts. And the greater truth that uh, it's, it's stating, this verse is stating, is that Jesus will come back in the glory of God to judge all people. And unless we follow Jesus, our deeds are going to condemn us. Jesus is going to the cross for the sake of saving a people for himself, a people that would live when faced with the judgment of God. Jesus' plan is not some American dream, a nicer career, or an improved world. All of those things are good things, I give you that. But that's not his plan. Jesus' plan is not our possibly spiritual, well-meaning, well-intended plan, hope, or dream. These are too small. Jesus is creating a new world where his multitude of people can enjoy a happy and fulfilled life in the presence and glory of God. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus did go to the cross and he did rise from the dead, proving that he was right and that he was the Christ. And having died and resurrected from the dead, he defeated death and he took away the sin that stood against his people. And by faith in him, anybody can be forgiven of their sins, have eternal life and escape judgment. So, he's on a trajectory. He's going to the cross. He's going to do a great work. The question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to follow him or not? And if we follow him, what does that look like? If we want to be his disciples, what does that look like? Jesus made this abundantly clear in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the second point for today. Disciples of Jesus deny themselves, pick up their crosses and follow him. One key thing to notice here is that there is no middle road. Jesus used the word must. He didn't say could try temporarily or if you wish. Um, if we want to follow Christ, we must deny ourselves, pick up our crosses and follow him. There is no other way to follow Christ. There is no other way to be his disciple. Friends, the Christ of the Bible, the anointed one of God, is going to the cross and he demands, not recommends, not encourages that we deny ourselves and follow him if we want to be his disciples. Okay, Nick, you'll say, what does it mean? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. What does it mean? Well, we know for sure it doesn't mean dying on a cross to pay for our sins. We're not going to follow Jesus so that we can pay for our sins. Christ went to the cross to pay for our sins as we heard in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 27. Since he accomplished that and rose from the dead, there is no need for us to pay for our own sins anymore. We couldn't pay for our sins. If we could pay for our sins, Christ would not have had to die. No, Jesus is not demanding that we die on the cross to pay for our sins. 
Also, by extension, this is not self-flagellation. Okay, this is not, okay, let's do enough good deeds so that we, uh, you know, somehow get some sort of higher standing in the kingdom or, you know, uh, uh, tip the scales in our favor or something like that. If that were possible, again, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross so that any sinner can be saved. No matter what you think you've done, Jesus' blood washes it all away when you put your faith in Christ. No matter what you think you've done, Jesus washes it all away when you put your faith in Christ. No, friends. Jesus is demanding that disciples deny themselves and pick up their crosses because it is God's plan to build His church and to defeat death. Jesus is demanding that disciples deny themselves and pick up their crosses because that is God's plan to build His church and to defeat death. Remember what Jesus told Peter in verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He is going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The same expression, pick up the cross, appears also in Matthew 10, verse 38, where it says, and who does not take his cross, this is Jesus speaking, who does not take his cross and follow him, follow me, sorry, who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In that chapter, we are told that Jesus sent his disciples throughout the people of Israel to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And he told them that as a consequence, they were not going to be treated well, but mistreated. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Matthew 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus also says, you will be hated by all. Matthew 10, verse 22. And a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Verse 24 of the same chapter. The people who follow Christ, therefore, die on the cross or are mistreated because they proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and because they proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And in the process, people will hate them and reject them. But all these things will happen because God wants to give testimony to all the peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, so some of them can be saved. Sinners like us hate God unless God gives us grace to believe in Him. And that grace comes through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17 tells us, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And in some people, that proclamation is met with faith given by God's grace, while in others is met by rejection of the message of truth and of the people of God. So we have a good news and the true Savior, that is Jesus Christ, who wants people to be saved. And he wants his church to grow and continue the mission of building the church. But this mission is met with hostility by sinful men and women who do not accept the sovereignty and truth of God but want to continue to live their lives in the lies that they and the world tell themselves. 
And what better way than to mistreat, persecute, and kill the servants of God who confront them with the truth? Jesus was treated this way. We know he was a good man. He healed people, he fed people, he preached the word of God, but he suffered and was crucified because of an envious people that couldn't stand the truth of God. They couldn't stand the truth of God. Right? Pilate, I mean people, not an envious people, but envious people. Pilate, the Roman governor, governor who crucified Jesus, knew this fact. Matthew 27, 18 says, For he, that is Pilate, knew that because of envy, they, that is the Pharisees, had handed Jesus over. The calling of a, of, of, uh, of a disciple in life is neither to make money, nor to get married, nor to build a house, nor to be somebody, nor to have children, nor to change the world, or even have a good quality of life. The calling in life is not to be doctors, professors, leaders, entertainers, finance people, or even pastors. The calling is to proclaim the gospel and to live by following Jesus and to dedicate one's life to building up the church. And when we do this, the world is going to take note. And some people are going to like it because it gives them salvation. And some people are going to hate it because it shows that their deeds are evil. Does this mean that all Christians are going to be persecuted? No. But all who believe in Jesus need to deny themselves. And all who believe in Jesus need to have a mindset, the mindset of a person who's carrying the cross. Life is about following him no matter what God may bring. People who believe in Jesus have to be ready to give up everything for him. And they need to stop being afraid of rejection, humiliation, and death. Will we be persecuted? <laughs> Why not? Why not? Christians suffer persecution all over the Middle East, Africa, and Asia today. In the West, our beloved West, Christ is the one God you can insult with impunity. You can say anything you want about Christ. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, and now we have the technological means to pursue, if not accomplish, what we want. How long do you think it will take before the so-called backward reactionary Christians in Washington, D.C. won't be able to keep a job or stay out of prison because they love Jesus and talk about his good news and worldview. You see, a great lie has been fed to us uh, Christians in the West. Although I'm not from the West, I'm from the East, but fine, I live in the West. A lie we swallowed up, and I adopted, because it was the path of least resistance. The lie we have been fed here in America and in the West is that religion is a private matter. This while Christ told us to proclaim the truth to all people, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and while Christ talked publicly about his faith. And while we believed the lie, the world advanced its religion of self-worship, career worship, pedigree worship, and riches worship. Publicly. 
So we Christians in the West have thus become timid, shy, that we might offend somebody if we speak the gospel, if we speak about Jesus. We have become absorbed in all sorts of good endeavors that uh, help save our lives, as the world defines them. We fear loss of health, family, and significance. We fear being disliked by our peers. All the while, people's lives around us are destroyed by sin through the breakdown of relationships and the pursuit of self-fulfillment ending in the eternal damnation of the people we call neighbors. Now, I do want to state two things. First, there are some of you here who have gone through rejection at the hand of loved ones for the, for the sake of Christ. I want you to be comforted and encouraged. You are on the road with Jesus and that road leads to life as we will see shortly. Second, there are many in this room who make it a priority to speak the truth of the gospel. And I want you and all of us to grow in our proclamation of the gospel. Friends, I am personally challenged by this message, okay? I told you I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. Um, the here and the now, the politics, the finance, the economics, the day-to-day life are in my face, as we say. Um, why lose my career if I can be a little bit more politically correct and live to see another day in which I can probably proclaim the gospel more? Uh, why lose my children by staying faithful to the word of God? Why lose my significance by serving the people next to me who may not appreciate it instead of securing a better career that can likely improve our lives down the road? The answer is given to us in verses 25 to 27. The disciples deny themselves and pick up their crosses because Jesus leads them into life. Into life. So verses 25 to 27. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The final point for today's sermon is that Jesus leads his disciples into life. So again, if you take one thing today from this sermon, take the following. Pick up, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus into life. Remember to put the into life at the end. Jesus Christ claims he's coming back and he will repay everyone according to their deeds. He claims that if somebody's deeds are evil, that person's soul is going to suffer hell forever. Therefore, gaining your life refers to eternal life and losing your life refers to eternal death. Jesus is going into eternal life and he's taking his church with him. Jesus claims that if we try to live our lives apart from following Christ, we'll, we'll lose those lives at the end when he's coming back. Life apart from Christ, even if it means gaining the whole world, is a lost life, Jesus claims. And the reality, now let's be frank, the reality, friends, that is that Jesus was overly generous right here because the vast majority of us know somehow that, that our lives are not what we would like them to be. We know that. We are nowhere closer to getting the whole world. Some of us are closer to where we want to be, feverishly working to accomplish those longings. 
But we know that life is fragile and it's a struggle and that time works against us. We live one day to the next, one positive thought to the next, always finding somebody around us to look up to, some group to be part of so that we, that can give us a sense of confidence. And we are trying too hard to push back the naked, shocking truth that we are not going anywhere good. How good can our lives be on this earth if Jesus had to die on the cross to save us? The creator of life, who understands life here and life there, died on the cross to save us from our lives here. How good can those lives get? Jesus came from heaven to earth and sacrificed himself to save a people for himself. There is no greater love than that. When Jesus asks us to follow him, he asks us to follow him so we can live. Following him is difficult and requires the grace of God, but it is a life of true hope. It is not the hope of temporary accomplishments and circumstantial prosperity, but the hope of eternal life in the presence of God. It is also a life of joy. Yes, joy. Not the positive media joy, but true joy. It's not the joy of human endeavors, but the joy of knowing the truth about Jesus. The joy of loving one another for real. The joy of having an eternal, eternal hope. It is the joy of the relief from not having to try so hard to just keep one's head above the water. It is the joy of spending your life to see other people be saved. Yes, Jesus went to the cross. Yes, he's asking his disciples to deny themselves. But he rose from the dead and he is going to come back again in his Father's glory. And people who follow him, follow him into eternal life. People who don't follow him may, highly unlikely, but may gain the whole world. But they will lose their souls forever. Jesus is not asking people to give up life. He's asking people to give up the deceitful road which leads to death, eternal death, and get eternal life. So are we going to walk with him or not? Are we going to walk with Jesus on his road? The image of Christ we have in this passage is a shocking one. He's either a raving madman, in which case we can dismiss him, or he is God's anointed king who went to the cross rose from the dead and is calling his disciples to follow him into eternal life. If he is God's anointed, if he rose from the dead, then his view of life is the correct one and ours is a lie. If he is for real, we don't have a choice but to follow him if we want to live. If he is for real, professing Christians need to deny themselves and follow him into life. If he is for real, doubters, skeptics, and enemies of Christ have a choice. They either continue in their sins on a path which leads to destruction or become Jesus' disciples. 
And practically speaking, disciples of Jesus deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow him by doing three things. Okay, I'm just going to give you very practically three things. They look to the returning Jesus, they repent and believe, and they proclaim the good news. They look to the returning Jesus. It is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus without looking to the returning Jesus. He is the one we are supposed to follow. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, for the Son of Man is going to come, says Jesus. We need to look to him, the true Christ, who went to the cross, rose from the dead, and will one day come back. If he did not rise from the dead, just go ahead, party, conquer the world, whatever you want. This is useless. If he's not coming back, go ahead, party, do anything you want because this is all fake. He said he's going to come back. And if we believe that, we can look to the crucified Jesus who is coming back and live. And we can look to him in the scriptures. And we can look to him as he's at work in his community, in his church that he's building up. So look to the returning Christ. Look to the returning Christ in the scriptures and in his work that he's doing in his church. Second, we need to repent and believe. Why? Because we fail, right? Jesus started his ministry with a call to repentance and continued it by admonishing his people for their lack of faith. You can see this in Matthew 16, verse, uh, verse 8, for example. Let us turn back from our, from our love of sin and rebellion, from our man-made images, man-made trajectories, and believe in the true God. We need to trust that the Christ we see in the Scriptures is telling the truth about who we are and about the world that we see around us and about the fact that he's coming back. We need to believe that obedience and eternal joy is more important than immediate survival. Finally, we need to proclaim the good news. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the people and rose from the dead on the third day. He will one day come back to judge the living and the dead. And the last commandment Jesus left with his disciples was in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, followers of Christ proclaim the good news and train the people who put their faith in Jesus. And we can very practically do this by telling the people around us about Jesus and by discipling one another. Friends, at the beginning of 2019, we are on a road. And I pray that it is 
Jesus' road that leads to life. Let us deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus into life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus ahead of us. You sent him to the cross to die for our sins, a thing we could have never done. We thank you that by faith in him we can be saved. And we thank you that you have made for us a way to be saved. We pray that you guide us on this path, that we would look to the returning Christ, that we would live a life of repentance and faith, that we would proclaim the gospel, Lord. And we pray that by your grace we will stand no matter what comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.